Do you know tape machines? I mean, I've watched a lot of videos, but I don't know I, them. I, I will chime in. I do know tape machines. Yeah, that's what I was going uh, <laughs> to so I, I, I can't give any specs, but my drummer, Russ, he's getting two tape machines from his grandpa. So they're from like at least the 60s. I'm guessing they're probably real to reels. Yeah, like, they're real to reels. See, that's, I mean, that's like playback. Is We're that a talking about, Is that Well, it depends. With? I mean, all right, here. So there's like a couple categories. There's your prosumer stuff that like a lot of people did, which you're probably talking yep. about like the uh, Akai Pioneer. So like for a very short window of time, reel to reel was like a commercially available thing. So you could get like, you know, Smokey Robinson on it. Or By a little Barry Manilow on reel to reel. <laughs> Yeah, you listen to it. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Or like do like really like very like low level prosumer recording from your like, you know, totally very like easy stuff. Then there's like multi track and that kind of it is a whole spectrum of stuff. Yeah. Um everything from like Tascam and Fostex stuff in like the late seventies, right? Mm-hmm. And then like the upper grade stuff that you're kind of talking Studer about. And Ampex. Studio Ampex. M- Upper professional Japanese stuff like Otari mm-hmm. is also another thing. That's in there. Um, yeah, it all depends. It really all depends. Yeah, I, it depends. Yeah, I like would guarantee you these are like a single, like there's no mixer. Like these are just, yeah. they go It's going to be probably a quarter inch two track machine, yeah. which is like the standard for that playback. Yep. But like recording, typically, I mean, it started with two and then four, actually it started with one track, then two, then four, then eight, 16, 32, whatever. And then so you record onto 16, say 32 tracks, whatever it is on that tape machine. And then you mix that down to a two track quarter. Inch so can usually. we can we fucks with those or like oh, can, we what can we do with fucks with can them. we run drums through it or something like make it sound maybe cool? it depends what the eye um, looks like. So, I mean, from my so I my studio setup, I use a old Porto one for oh, nice. a couple of reasons. Um and I've found that, like, while I can record straight into it and we could probably like make an album, right, you know, with four sure. tracks and whatever, which is cool. I think it's more becoming a, a good effect or a good way to mess with the audio in a way to kind of create some of that. Um, I don't be- personally, I don't believe the emulation plugins are where it's at when it comes to tape. Yet. Dude, I, so I, I use them. I use the Studer on tr- during tracking and then I mm-hmm. use the Ampex on a master bus, but I don't think of them as tape machines i think of them sort of like you're saying is more of just like a coloration effect it is it kind of really just for lack of a better term warms things up yeah right uh, and and that's but i yeah i don't because everything i do except for this podcast actually the ampex 102 machine plugin from uad is on it like on the two mm-hmm. bus oh, okay but again it's not because like i think it sounds like tape i just think it does this kind of like cool high mid bump thing um, that I like a lot and and it sort of tightens things up a little bit. It's yeah. almost like a, it's almost like a compressor when it comes down to it, just the way it kind of adds a little gain and moves things around a little bit. Yeah, I mean those <laughs> all of that stuff kind of they emulate it's emulating a, an actual like, you know, circuit, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that like I was listening to a plug-in yesterday when we were recording um with a colleague and I just was thinking about why signal works the way it does digitally versus like analog right and when we think about like why we route signal because i was getting into a little bit of a soapbox about like how when i sample stuff for like hip-hop production right you Mm -hmm. use a lot of samples they're extremely clean i don't really need to do anything to them i don't need to necessarily eq them because they've they've already been eq'd and processed yeah it's and so, like, I feel like the the nature of mixing changes extremely, right? <laughs> yeah, that's Absolutely. A good point. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So, like, 
the whole it kind of bleeds into the same thing it's like when we're using plugins that emulate tape it's like are we emulating we're emulating one circuit and then there's guys who are like trying to get advanced and they model a whole board Mm -hmm. or something but at the end of the day you're not going to get the same qualities as like when you pull out maybe like a tape machine or even just an old dusty piece of equipment that age that use that stuff changes the 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 electronics the actual electrical Mm -hmm. signal that like Mm -hmm. comes in through your input you don't get that in digital. Once goes in, it stays at whatever it came it is what in. It is. Dude, I 100% agree with what you're saying right now. And I think, and I've thought about this, and I think it comes down to chaos. So hear me out for I'm, a second. Dude, I, I'm, I, I'm I know, in. I know, we just smoked the fucking fatty J, but <laughs> let, let, me get, let me get into chaos for a minute here. <laughs> All right, so. You, you talk like this digital recreation. Maybe it does follow every single transformer, every single part of the circuit path exactly like the tape machine did. But like you were saying, those machines have variants. They're, the tolerances and the capacitors were different. The transformers were f- probably hand wound at that point. Like it, it, there is going to be this unpredictability within using that external tape machine within using some sort of tube piece of gear that you can't ever it's impossible to emulate that no matter how perfect the schematic or design is because there, there's that element of chaos just like guess what the subatomic level of every single one of us human beings on this earth right now it appeals to us on a human level because it is what we are made of we are all star to treat us <laughs> preach bro preach all right well we're gonna circle back just a little before bit. we circle back let <laughs> no, me let, let me go, let, let me just go. do something here uh, we've got a guest on on the podcast. We do today. have a guest today. Episode nineteen, 19 Britton Weatherall, baby. Introduce yourself, my friend. Hey guys, uh, I am Britton Weatherall, better known as Britt Jones. Uh, I was, I've been a man about town for a while. He's been a man about town for a while. That's we'll, awesome, we'll get a little bit more into all yeah. the depth and stuff later. I want to come back to this chaos. Wait, yeah, you, were you about to go on back. a tangent? Right well, now? he was, no. Britt I know. Was I about just, to I think back. I, I agree. To dive right into this, I agree with you about chaos. I think maybe it, that the chaos theory that they, we're both agreeing on and operating under is that when you don't necessarily select the use of vintage equipment, like you don't buy something and it's going to be just pristine out the box. Like there is this element of chance. Yeah. Whenever you like, because I will scour the earth, all right, and it's a, the hugest habit of mine, and my wife hates me for it, but like <laughs> don't they? I, will go to estate sales. I will go, I will basically lift any sort of like dungy, dirty thing to find a piece of equipment that probably is a never been used. Like, I just want to find something that's interesting. Absolutely. I want to find something. And that's chaos. Mm-hmm. That's chaos. And it's, it, I don't know what I'm going to find. Like, it, will I find a roads that, I, you know, you just pick up somewhere or will you get like, you know, this crazy tape machine or a delay or almost like something you brought that we were playing with <laughs> yeah. before, you, before we got on the mics here. Yeah. Exactly. It, exactly. So I, I, I think that you're very right on when it comes to chaos. I think it's just when we think about chaos, it even kind of goes down into a more concentrated level because when we talk about things like SSL emulations and Neve emulations and people modeling these popular boards and sure. stuff, mm-hmm. um, I think that there's this misnomer, like you're going to get the sound from the same guy and we forget that the use of board and the changing of like parts and stuff like that is an ongoing process in studios. Huh. I've worked in, in studios in yep. LA, you know, like, um, and I, w- my first gigs were just like pissing other techs off, getting parts for the E in, in a production studio that was, you know, right across the street from, mm-hmm. you know, Devonshire. And, you know, that's, 
that use, that changing of a certain capacitor or a transformer or when the VCAs go, mm -hmm. that changes the nature of the channel strip. That mixture of channel strips also changes the nature of the sound. Then we also have to get into the points of what you're talking about with <laughs> tape machines, right? Yep. We haven't even accounted for like, you know, the use of external board equipment or anything else like that. You go into your, your Studer, it's a, you know, 24 track tape machine. Mm -hmm what channels, what pre's, what, you know what I mean? Like all of the things that go, what tape head is worn a little bit more, like yep. all of those like little things get accounted for. And the spirit of engineering, at least from what we understand is that we want the purest signal into the purest signal out, right? Um, we want to capture the true tradition or essence of that. Well, over the years that's changed. Now we don't mix like that anymore. That's true. That's very true. And it's, I, well, you, I've been on this soapbox for years. <laughs> so for those of us who don't know, which is probably everybody that isn't sitting in this room, uh, this isn't my first podcast, it turns out. <laughs> I actually, before, honestly, I don't think the word podcast existed when we had a show together no. back in the day. You guys had a show. We had a show. Uh, it was, it was, I was briefly on, and it was called Crosstalk on GearWire.com, which honestly, yeah. like, I didn't even consider any of that when we decided to start this thing. Like, I forgot that I did this before, basically. The problem being, that, of course, that I was a fucking idiot back then and thought I knew way more than I did. Don't we all? And then on top of that, I got, and Britain can attest to this, mercilessly trolled. Oh, man. Like, so bad. Online? Every single episode. And this was before, I mean, we did video and audio. I think I it was all this, just dude. on GearWire.com. Mm -hmm. I don't think this was on YouTube or anything, but every time there were dozens of comments mostly talking shit about me just like the external signal it has changed who you are today <laughs> well, that's chaos baby that's chaos and that's a, yeah just to roll this all back about that right like even then we were talking about the idea of changing the nature of mixing from this this kind of pristine idea to mixing for mp3 mixing lo-fi records for like, iphones now right or the cassettes that you brought over yeah yeah like yeah exactly so the nature of the the beast is completely different than it once was. And I think that the more and more as an engineering side, and we can talk about production and making music a little bit, you know, on a different level, but like from an engineering standpoint, when we're mixing records, I think more and more people need to be open to admitting that. Cause when, even when you pay time to go into a studio and stuff like that, if you're only bringing up you know, two channels or it's like a summing amplifier these days, mm -hmm. very little use of that board is happening unless you're intentionally doing it. And that's, I, that's, that's fair. Yeah. There's no real, it's, it's, it's no longer necessary to record everything through a board like it used to be or no, to mix everything. through not a board. at all. They're flashy. They look good in a studio. I mean, you know, I, I can count on my hands the times I've seen people using a full 24 channels on an SSL. I can definitely say, day in and day out i will see them use the fucking bus compressor because that's yep. what glues everything together that's what, that's what you and pay people the two hundred thousand dollars for <laughs> <laughs> no I, but it's real i mean like whether you're sitting in crc and there's a rap session going on all those kids know how to do is route the board bring it up through a you know stereo mm -hmm. set of channels and then route it to the to the bus compressor and you basically just call it a day dude i remember actually back in GearWire days it was when that clasp unit came out that essentially gangs a pro tool session to your tape machine so you can hit the record heads on your ampex or studer whatever it is and then it goes dumped Friendly right tape. into pro tools yeah. oh, i bet they don't even use that anymore i mean they have all that equipment but i would i would imagine they have even removed that from do you the think process. it's like a changing of the guard do you think people are going to use that knowledge that you know you have and many other recording engineers have like or is it just like 
do you think we're going the way of like simpler is the be- you know the best it's a fair question it's an art form but is it i, I don't want to say I, dying I, ha- like, I have a response but i think i think i want to hear you first I, well, I want, okay so my here's my response uh and in fact it was one of the things i wanted to talk about on the episode today in mid-november electrical audio everybody's mm-hmm. favorite Chicago studio owned by Steve Albini and Greg Norman is hosting a four day seminar where it's only 10 people are allowed, but they're going to do a full analog tape recording session. You were there from, from soup to nuts wow. with them learning how to, you know, clean the, clean the heads on the tape machine, sure. how to properly align all that shit and calibrate it, how to work the neotechs that they've got there and all Steve's favorite gates and compressors and all that shit. Like, so to me, I want to go just for Steve's favorite tips. Oh, well, <laughs> okay. So the next thing that we're going to get to is how obsessed I've been with that lately. And if you look on the the piece of paper over there, That's I've scribble. been taking copious notes on Steve Albini's drum recording techniques. But regardless, I want to go because I want to see, do people really care about recording on tape machines anymore? Like for me, I probably don't. Like I don't see myself ever buying and learning how to operate a tape machine. But I can focus on all the other techniques that he uses when making those records. Now, do I want to pay the two thousand dollars for a half half of the program? I probably won't use. I don't know. I don't think so. It's two grand. It's two grand. And That's what that was. That was all right. So I mean, four days they mm. provide a light breakfast and lunch every day. Oh, I bet that's delicious. A little two co- grand. continental breakfast, two, baby. Two grand. Five hundred a day. Really, I mean, all right. Full disclosure: I don't need that class. Yeah. For sure. Like I already, I went through that. I was going to say, yeah. you could learn more just being, recording your band for two grand in a are, studio. But are asking you, questions. are you, are you Not also paying for, for getting to know Steve Albini and Greg Norman on a personal oh. basis? I mean, there's, it's a limit of 10 people for it's the class. Celebrity. Well, it, he, I mean, it is celebrity, but also I respect his techniques as much or more than any other producer engineer I can sure. think of. Well, all right. So I went. I graduated in 03 of full sale. So I was like one of the last classes to have to deal with analog recording. Yeah. Like the actual nuts and before bolts it really changed. Bolts. Well, to so I got certified in like a very early version of Pro Tools. I think HD just came out. The first version of the mm-hmm. inbox came out. Rewind it all back, guys. Oh, yeah. Close oh, your eyes. Dude, I'm <laughs> there, man. Way back machine. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then, you know, the industry is collapsing because of the home studio market just emerging and nobody's. Mm-hmm. So like when we were in school, we had we we had to know the basics of tape calibration, tape recording, dumping, um, you know, like time code, how to do all that stuff, how to, you know, you when you're doing certain things like basically tracking and you want to, let's say, keep in time with a computer, you're going to have to, you go down to 23 tracks, mm-hmm. right? SMTP. Well, yeah. See, so you have to print. Um, the stuff that I did, I'm still a little, like I had to learn on my own the hard way was editing. Editing is a very, it's an art. Tape editing specifically. Tape editing oh my specifically. god, that is something I have never and probably will never. Sounds get to terrifying. Do. It's it's a thing that you have to like, but that's a again, it's an art. They, mm-hmm. you know, people back in the day used to like be really proud of their cleanliness mm-hmm. of edits and stuff like sure. that. Um, so when I when you think about two grand as a price tag for somebody like me and probably the people that would pay two grand yeah. for this, it's either going to be lawyers who don't have any experience, true, doctor, you know, kids with yeah. a lot of money, Blue rich lawyers. people, yeah, yep. rich kids. It's either going to be rich kids or it's going to be pros who are really, they are there for very specific things. Mm -hmm. And they're going to be like, cool, you ran a 16 track tape machine. 
Now tell me what the fuck you're doing with your drums. Yeah, exactly. that's, that's, <laughs> right. what it, that's what it is. By the way, it's like four days or whatever. It's like cramming it's for a test. Days. You're going to forget all that shit if you don't go home and practice well, it. I would imagine day one is just the tape machine. Like I, like the ins and outs. like this. Button. The ins and outs, but then also how to set it up for a session. Clean, you know? yeah. Did yep. you guys ever meet Brian Fox locally? Mm-hmm. That doesn't sound familiar. He's another engineer. He came out of Albini Studio. Oh, cool. cool. So, I mean, he's one of those guys that I would ask a lot of those questions, but... Um, Greg Norman's interesting to me because of his his track record in general, because mm-hmm. he really absorbed a lot of those lessons from Albini. But if you remember, I mean, his come up really was that first Russian Circles record. Oh, really? You know, but like, they just started. They just kicked off a tour today, actually. Yeah, he was. I mean, he was an assistant forever, man. Like he did a lot of assistant work, mm-hmm. and then, you know, maybe within the next last ten years, started really coming into his own. But his ears were for a while. I mean, my critiques about them, I mean, he's a fantastic engineer, but mm-hmm. you know, like when, when you hear things, he wasn't doing the same thing Albini was at all, you know, mm. and that's the same equipment, man. It, it is. It shows like stylistically how your ears tune to things. I think Greg tends to be a heavier engineer. That's why like some of the sounds that you get out of his metal projects are extremely like signature to that. Mm-hmm. I think Albini's always been a, a higher end mixer, more tinniness more growl so to speak and less yeah. like less bottom in. so you would say he like he has his signature sound that he kind of stamps yeah. on everything w- that which he is does. actually kind of funny because i think his sort of reason what's the french word anyways his like main goal is to not have a sonic signature he want his goal is to make records that sound like just the like the that band that played him. in the room yep going back to like so traditionally engineering was this whole concept Th- that's what it that, was yeah. right yeah and you know i just Again, I don't even think I think Steve Albini himself was a part of that revolution where we started thinking about mixing as like another part of an aesthetic quality to an overall recording. Do you have like I'm just going to jump in here. Do you have like a favorite engineer or like record that you really stands out to you? Like not like one, but like an idea or right right on the spot there. I I have to, man, because I'm I'm into this, man. Like, you know, it's all about putting your stamp on things. I'm sure you have influences. Well, I mean. It all depends. I, I do things project per project basis. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's qualities that, you know, people like Steve Albini, when I listen to certain records, I really am fascinated with. I'm more fascinated with his big black records than I think anything else. Oh, that's funny. I was going to I was going to totally talk about shellac because I feel like the big black stuff, while it it is, that's he was I don't know. That was like his solo project in a lot of ways. So it's like his sort of personal statement while he was learning how to be this like world-renowned recording engineer but the shellac shit that's when to me he like settled into his sound i guess for lack of a better term and no and, and i i i i like that argument i think i'm more fascinated because i do some of the the pro- stuff that he kind of did back in the day kind of helped spurn a lot of sounds for a lot of other things oh, definitely like the whole industrial idea yep. like this guy's in Chicago around the same time as Ministry. Ministry, mm-hmm. Jorgensen, they're all here. Yeah, so like I'm just like some of the thwacky, like really like abrasive nature mm-hmm. of some of the music. Like that that stuff is playing into the hotbed of of a lot of that, like what is going to become like a, a whole face of electronic music. A or movement, or you know? like, and, it, and then it kind of split because it was that and it was also like, Sonic Youth and Nirvana, like oh. really, really influenced a lot of but that all shit. Those, all those records have like this really really high end tinniness to them. Did like, Smashing did Pumpkins record with him? I don't, I don't think so. I hope not. They fuck, had a high end tinniness to their, their shit. Their well, <laughs> it's just like, 
And you hate like, when I bring up Billy Corgan. I don't hate when you bring up Billy Corgan. I just kind of don't like him. Yeah. Chicago. It's just a Chicago thing. I yeah. mean, like, all right, Billy Corgan sucks, obviously. That's just. <laughs> but, I mean, I still have to give props to all, all that he's had that he's accomplished. I, I mean, mean, Melancholy had some great tunes on there. I was a fan of Gish when that record was a thing, for sure. But just, like, I think it's I think it's his persona. I think it's this, like, weird professional like, wrestling. He's a douche. douche I, I've said it once, and I'll say it again. He is the alternative 90s version of ted nugent oh i like it dude Dude. you know he's got his hits you got to respect that the man was like a massive songwriter for certain aspects of the 90s but he's he's totally a whack job do you think how how long (laughs) until billy corgan starts showing up at republican rallies (laughs) i mean he's kind of there pretty much 700 acre farm he does no, uh, oh, Nugent oh, does. Nugent. Yeah, Nugent private. is a 700 acre It's bigger farm. than that, I think, actually. Oh, I think man. it's like way bigger than that. <laughs> but to more answer your question, like Tony Viscotti yeah. really was a huge impl- influence on my like idea of records and, and how they sound. I think when it comes to engineering in general, when you take like the, the basics, you kind of have to think about it in your own terms. And if you're not challenging what other engineers are doing, I don't think you're going to learn on your own because you don't parallel compress everything. You don't, you know, you don't do all of these things that you can do all of the fucking time. Mm-hmm. You know, you have a toolkit and, and you choose the right tool. Doesn't mean you use right all job. of them at the same time. Yeah. 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 So like you always want to be learning, but I'm also not always curious about what someone's doing on a record that way. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And I think that's kind of, that's what I would approach. Does that. it get hard to listen to like new music once you know so much about production and recording? Like, do yep. you, is it, are you able to take away that from the art that's being created? I used to. That's funny that you say that. Yep. <laughs> and I was like, I used to, but now I don't know what's kind of happened to me is that like, I've kind of just relaxed in, in maybe my ways where sure. I'm just listening now. And I'm like, I think it's the only way I feel like I'm getting fresh ideas is that I'm just listening to people whether or not I like what their their advice is or, mm-hmm. or not, like, you know, the big thing that people found out was uh, Kendrick Lamar's engineer was mixing in mono. On no like, shit. Oh, no shit. On, or, you know, like on the ver- yeah. some, the newer version of Oratone Cubes. No and, kidding. I did not know that. And that's that's like a thing now and everyone online is like, well, you, I'm you gonna, have to do this. I'm going to start collapsing the mono right there. In yeah, my dude. Section. Crush it. No, I've, I've tried that a few times. It's not for me. I, I cannot get used to that shit. But it's it's actually that's a great question, man. And I and I've been I've been finding myself actually aware of that while listening to things lately. Like I was walking I was walking in the neighborhood yesterday listening to uh the newest King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard record. Oh, this guy's ripped. Which, like, I've honestly never really cared about them that much. But then everybody told me, like, have you listened to the Heavy record? And I hadn't. And the first thing I noticed was, like, oh, this opening track is badass. But then, like, immediately switched into producer brain. And I was like, whoa. How did they record this? Why is the snare only in the right channel right now? <laughs> and, like, oh, whoa. Like, there these vocals are definitely him just, like, getting pitched and moved around. So it's, like, it's I, I had... In other words, I find it very hard to turn that part off and just like appreciate a song aesthetically without without getting into like technique engineer brain. It's very I, hard. Well, I mean, like this is where I'm kind of at with all of that, right? Like these guys made it to this certain level of success and this person was, you know, chosen for this job and all of these things happened. And then at the end of the day, they, de- they decide to go with it. It is and, what it is. And like, you know. Sometimes you just gotta kind of go, huh? That's the decision they made, and, mm-hmm. and if it's not for you, that's that's cool. I don't, 
you know, I'm not like thinking about it in the terms of like, why did he do that or anything? Cause I'm just like, he, he made a choice. Like this was this, this was the decision to make the record seem this way. And it, like, that's the way it works. Kind of circles back to like live music. You have a chance. If you really want to see what they actually sound like, go see them live. You mm -hmm. know, you have that opportunity. I do. I do tend to, in my brain, keep the live band thing separate from the record thing. Right. Because to me, a, a record is more of a document of a, artist or band in a certain place in time and the live show is kind of like the reinterpretation of that like or, i've seen their like live at kexp thing or whatever and like obviously that's mixed dude, those are so stuff. good by the way but i what just I'm, started watching those uh, they're so intimate man and, like they're, they're really just good. right there with the band and obviously it's run through a processing and all that shit but like that is the band you yeah. know so well for me records are all, like i love live music don't get me wrong and i will forever love love performing love mm -hmm. all of that that's stuff, why you got into right? it i'm sure yeah yeah I mean, that was the first way, right? Mm -hmm. um, it, you know, for me, the record is always going to be the the most clarified artistic expression of the group of people that it put it out. Word, and it's very in my in my little opinion in this universe yeah. in corner. <laughs> um, when we see things over the historical time span of like pop music and recorded music and all this stuff, things change slowly. Right. And it used to be that producers and engineers were very, very non artistic people. And they were yeah. very much like lab coats and lab EMI coats and for the engineer. Shit. Producers were money men. Mm -hmm. Back to the it. EMI story yep. we were telling. Exactly. About. So, you know, when, when that shift of, of producers became, part of the creative side when you had people like Brian Eno and in, in, in the tail end of this becoming people that like you hear records that will never ever and I need to stress this ever be played live perfectly oh yeah, yeah. it can't be um the, the this becomes a whole different world then and I think that's what the 70s really opened up mm -hmm. for a lot of people and I think that's why a lot of us are going back and being really fascinated with album oriented rock like Steely Dan or something is that that idea where this is the most perfect setting, uh, this is the the account of the most perfect. It was a moment in time. Yeah. Is is now fully, we fully realize that. Yeah. Now we have an engineering has to become an artistic thing. <laughs> like all of this stuff has huh. to become now more creative in its approach because we've now, we know and we have taken into account and we have learned how to distill and and basically repeat the technical aspects of it over and over again through plugins through settings through logarithms all of this stuff is now just a given you you can buy something from waves to fake your brain into thinking you can mix an abbey right oh i was just watching a video about that you and i mix, sign mix me on up, headphones dude. inside yeah. <laughs> Road, and it uses your camera on your computer to track to head track oh that's cool i kind of like that though it's and fun this but think about that and like i I do a podcast with another cross-talky guy, which right? is called. Uh, it's called "How to Suck at Recording." Love that title. Oh, that's great. Um, and he's not as interested, I would say, at the moment about this concept. But I think it's a very interesting thing. Like, what are we going to do when you can theoretically mix through a fake version and a log map version of this room? You're monitoring. It's mm -hmm. a plug-in for monitoring. Yep. This is not affecting your signal. It's but it is. And that's like, again, this is going to get into all of these kind of weird things. We're affecting our signal way a lot now in, 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 a, in a digital setting where that same signal is just always going to exist in ones and zeros. There's, with all of this flexibility, there's less flexibility than ever.
Dude. Dude, and we didn't even yeah. get into the performing. Like, mm-hmm. the artists themselves. I mean, I watched this documentary, The Temptations were playing on this Motown documentary, and they were singing a five-part harmony live with one microphone hanging in the ceiling. So it's like... D- we have we have that other side of it where you have like this handicap of not even being able to perform that well anymore. You know, it's some the of it truth. some it of it is, came yeah. from like tone from like the way you're palm muting the guitar. You know what I mean? Like some of the tone starts with the player. You know, and it's just it's bone weird, tone, man. baby. Bone tone. Bone tone. Well, I think it's also uh, you kind of when you were going back into like the Porta days of your mm-hmm. life and stuff. Like we have gotten this really freeing sense of no longer having to write songs in a rehearsal setting where we're doing it piece by piece but without you know a a memory assister essentially and now with that kind of future ableton's a great example i was just gonna say session view of ableton right there (laughs) like i literally can just put together things and you can put together a 16 note phrase or 16 bar phrase and then you can put together an eight one and you can take time and all this stuff, but you never have to play it fully to get the idea to sound right together. Mm-hmm. All you got to do is just boom, it's there. Press a button and all of a sudden you've got accompaniment. And then th- this goes into your argument. What are we, you know, you lose some of that like real time feel, yep. some yep. of all that stuff. There's so much going on in, and then there's people pulling away from it now. Mm-hmm. That is completely crazy. Like people like Zola Jesus and they're like complaining about quantize and complaining about, you know, being attached to the screen. Um, So I do think that we're kind of reaching a very interesting time in both digital recording and analog recording. Dude, couldn't set it better myself. Beautifully spoken, man. You know, it just occurred to me, we do have a podcast that we uh, have that we're doing (laughs) here. So like, as much as I as I, I feel, dude, I no. feel I, dude, I feel like a TA or something fuck right now. The, it's like we've got to get back onto the, the, criteria, the rubric man. here, let's folks. Just, let's just wrap. But it. no, I did want to get to one thing that. So like, we do have a couple different segments we usually mm-hmm. do. I think probably the most important one is what we call Ministry of Corrections because one thing about <laughs> this podcast is that we don't like we refuse to have the internet up while we're doing stuff. So yeah. that just turns into us saying a lot of stupid shit. We make shit up. Um, okay. So a couple of clarifications from last week that are actually kind of pertinent to what we're talking about here. One of which was about uh, Alan Parsons. Yep. And uh, yeah, do your thing. Uh, Alan Parsons, his first credit ever was fucking Abbey Road. Yeah, like Alan Parsons, he was eighteen. He started as an intern at, at I think it was actually no, it wasn't called Abbey Road yet. He gets production credits on that too. He has an engineer credit. Engineer, okay. Uh, Yeah, so that's his first credit. Okay, but basically last week we we couldn't remember, and it turns out that there's a bit of controversy around this. We couldn't remember the order of the last two Beatles records. Obviously, there was Let It Be, and there was Abbey Road. So it turns out, and, and we were right about this. Abbey Road came out first, and in many ways. Let It Be was recorded first, right. but Let It Be came out after Abbey Road. So it's kind of like this philosophical question of like, the, <laughs> do you consider Yellow Yellow Submarine a record? Do you consider Magical Mystery Tour a record, which was only released in the US and right. was just a compilation? So there's this weird middle ground. The same thing kind of happened with Let It Be. Personally, I think I'm just going to stick with Abbey Road being the final Beals record also because it's better than Let It Be. Um, but, you know, it, 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 there is there is no clear answer. In other words, that's all. That, I was, like one it. Of, that was it. I think that it, I mean, I would say the, the philosophical quandary is really funny about is it the artist's timeline or is it your timeline? That's exactly it. And no matter how you dice that, 
the fact is is that whatever the final Beatles recording is is that's their last statement. Okay, mm-hmm. so then you would say let it be because so it turns out while they did primary tracking fully before Abbey Road, they went back and redid some like Ringo drums and shit after Abbey Road. So technically they were last in the studio doing let it be. However, the last time they were all in the studio together at the same time was during Abbey Road recording don't remember what song maybe hey bulldog i can't remember now which one was the wh- this is what i would say when was the last initial demos written and then that's where you would go from i don't know the answer to that question yeah, that's a really good question yeah. but that's what i would like if you're going to go off of like hey what is what right like because when we talk like to cycle back and not to spend a lot of time but like when you go the final output is this record like this is the most perfect mm-hmm. vision of that Th- then if you're saying that then you have to account for all the production and all that stuff. And then technically whatever the last record released. Well, yeah, because the like the, the they had them recorded like done at the same time. And then the, but the labels released them at different times. Yeah. Didn't well, and yeah. And Let It Be was a little bit more of like a compilation. Also kind of uh, glomming onto the fact that the Beatles were now the biggest band in the world and had just broken up. So they like wanted to make some money off of this. The fact is there have been other Beatles releases after that, after Let It Be also, you know, they're quote-unquote compilations or like unreleased type stuff or there's i can't remember there was a one that was u.s only but like there's this weird thing are there 11 beatles records are there 13 maybe there are 14 it's kind of this like it's 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 (laughs) well and then there's all those singles Mm -hmm. and like it's yeah right so many yellow yellow submarine was technically an ep But then I, I think these are the funny arguments, though, man. but people like we're not really like crazy Beatles people. People who are deep, deep, deep into the Beatles. Like people they really care about, about this. this shit, yeah, bro. for sure. I just can't I can't get a, obsessed into any artist catalog like that. Like I just like there's no argument worth having about like the overall concept of that. Like it's yeah, just yeah. like I think what's more important is to note that a Alan Parsons was 18 when this happened, yep. yeah. which goes to show how different the landscape of recording was even just then mm-hmm. well and i another example jeff emmerich we were talking about his book last week he was i think 17 when he started working on rubber soul mm-hmm. like yeah they just like brought interns in as teenagers back then and like then these people and they were like you're a cool hang. recorders yeah all just hang out with yeah. us and kind like, of coming yeah back. but no it is funny because what you're what you were saying earlier is like it was just like a moment when it happened you know, yeah, there were things in line and like things were being measured and like they had the mics this far away. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it just fucking happened. And, it just like, happened, bro. You don't, you know, you can't really like get crazy about it. Sweet. I think I think we successfully did. We sum that up. Sum that one up and drove that one into the ground a little bit. Beat that dead um, horse. He also you know recorded what? Dark Side of the Moon. One. Okay. I just wanted to throw that out there. He did. He did. In fact, so he he. I was reading about him recently. He because uh, at the time it wasn't like at EMI, you weren't booked to Pink Floyd. You were just booked to work at whatever sessions were at mm-hmm. that time. But he wanted, he felt so strongly about Dark Side, he basically like changed the system and would like call off days and switch days so he could only work on Dark Side. They said that when they were doing Revolver, uh, Pink Floyd was recording down the hall. Yep. And they were like, we heard this band down the hall like using all these crazy effects and like doing all this shit. We got to make this shit way crazier. Oh, absolutely. There's a lot of stories that, or at Sound City, that was another thing. If you, I'm sure you've seen that documentary. Love it. There are a lot of a lot of stories about that, like when Fleetwood Mac was in there. That mm-hmm. was actually kind of how they met and whatever, mm-hmm. blah, blah blah. But so yeah, it's cool when artists influence one another. I guess. Yeah. What it comes down to. Oh, I misspoke. By the Yo. way, Tommy Vis- Tony Viscotti is mainly a producer. He did engineer some records. I Can just you name a few? Like, what did he work on so we can look him up? 
uh, T Rex and David Bowie. Fuck yeah! yeah. <laughs> there's the there's He's a the famous guy story about him. Oh, you can I was gonna say, say the, the you know the um, the vocals on Heroes. Mm-hmm. How like it's there's this like crazy long delay that happens. Well, basically the technology at the time wasn't quite up to what David Bowie was trying to accomplish for that song. So Tony came up with this amazing idea where basically he had a mic normal distance, say like a foot off of the uh, off of his mouth. Then he had another mic, say three feet away, and then another mic six feet away. And he had progressive levels of reverb on those microphones. And then he had gates on them. So basically when David would sing lower, it would only open up the first mic and it would be kind of a dry, clean sound. The louder he sang, it would open up the gates on those further mics with giant reverb. And that's how they got that huge, giant vocal sound on that record, which like that had never been done before. And, cool. you know, the digital technology that we could snap our fingers in live right now and do it super easily. Yeah. That didn't exist, you know, so we had to do this like physical thing with it. And, you know, maybe that record didn't sound it. Actually, I shouldn't say maybe that record would not sound like it does had it not been for Tony Visconti and Brian, Eno being involved. Yeah, man. I mean, the guy's basically known for all those string arrangements and engineering for all those early T-Rex and David wow. Bowie records. Yep. He's the guy who said, I regret not engineering Major Tom because I felt like it sounded too close to a Beatles record. <laughs> oh, shit. And he Dude, passed on it. Quick little side tangent. I just learned Rick Wakeman wrote and played the piano on Life on Mars. Like Rick Wakeman from Yes wrote that. Like He wrote that whole piano and played that whole piano part on that Bowie record. Amazing stuff. Those dudes are like, I mean, it's amazing to see those guys like Jimmy Page, how many ridiculous huge hits that dude played on well before Yardbirds or Led Zeppelin. Right. Like, they were just all, session guys. They were just session dudes. There was just more work back then, too, bro. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, like, people say there's a lot of work now, but it's just like a lot of in the box work and it's mm-hmm. a lot of like not paid work. I mean, people people were getting their money. <laughs> Hell yeah. Not yeah. a lot of money. But they, you were getting screwed. I mean, like, you were. especially in england where they were like taking all of your money essentially but like you know i mean you got your lunch and you got your joint and you were only in your 20s you know you're good sounds pretty awesome to me i take that rent was like (laughs) rent was like 50 bucks a month and shit yeah man all right well um that was a pretty good addition of ministry of corrections right there i'm gonna kick it over to dave from my favorite segment dave's doc is this your favorite segment i I say it every week uh so i watch a lot of documentaries okay uh, music documentaries um this this new one, it, you guys listen to Gorillas at all? It's um, I mean, I, dude I, from Blur. I, I, I fucked with Gorillas. Damon a couple times. Damon Albright, I think his name. Alburn. Alburn. Yeah, that's him. The animated band. It's yeah. actually it's actually a really cool doc. It's old. It came out in like two thousand three or something. I like that that's old. No, it's old. <laughs> it, it is though. Like if you watch it, it's all pixelated and it looks oh, like yeah. shit. Is it? But it's, it's actually really in depth into like the recording process, especially of that first album, which was fan. They which were just my this little studio sure. that like it looked like you know just a little room. Yeah. And there's like shit all on the walls, like guitars and keyboards and all that shit and like little computer monitors and everything's super old school. And they just did everything in like one room. So it's actually a really, really cool doc. Sweet, man. It's called Bananas. Bananas. Bananas with a Z. I highly recommend it. Um, They get into like Demon Days and all that stuff. The next album that came out. Yep. Um, Dude has super anxiety when he performs with this band for some reason. Is that why he doesn't ever appear like in front of us or I guess, yeah, in front of a screen? I think, well, he was in fucking blur he so like blur. obviously he's not like but it was weird man it's it's a cool doc i think it was one of those things where they they wrote it it came out kind of like what we were talking about earlier it was it was a thing where you recorded it so well how do you perform this live like how do you come back to it and then he goes oh fuck like this this song blew up the recording blew up we have to get all these musicians together they had this uh bass player from jamaica who was like on all these like old reggae records and shit cool. like he's like 50 something years old 
he like got denied his flight. I think he got caught with weed at the airport or something like that. Wow. So they had to find a bass player last second. Like it's it's pretty cool, man. Dude, it's I'm a good doc. So it's called Bananas. It's probably on YouTube. Um, if not, hit me up. I can uh, send you a file. <laughs> well, that's illegal, brother. Yeah. Cool. Ah, Dave's docs. Love Dave's it. Docs. Thanks, Jack. I'm gonna go over to go over to the next segment, Riff Library. Oh no. That's uh that's where I talk about another uh, music book. And this week, I wanted to bring up one of my all time favorite books. This is your brain on music. Actually, now that I think about it, I don't remember who gave it to me, but back in our Imbira days, somebody actually that we worked with gave it to me, and I don't remember who it was. Um, but it's called This Is Your Brain on Music, The Science of a Human Obsession. It's written by this dude, Daniel Levitin, who's a neuroscience neuroscientist, but also huge music fan and historian and all that sort of thing. Um, and it really it takes a, a technical approach to understanding why humans like music, but not spoken like you're reading a medical paper with all sorts of jargon and shit that you're, that you're not going to understand. Um, I, I didn't know this until I was doing a little research before the pod. Dude, so, uh, I mean, it's used in countless universities now. MIT, you name it, they use it in their classes. Every single student at Harvard that goes through the general education program has to read that book as a freshman. Oh, wow. Yeah, Very cool. so it's like not only a, a science, but it's also just kind of understanding the human experience. And I actually pulled a quote from it because it's an awesome quote. This is, you know, from the writer. He said, music may be the activity that prepared our pre-human ancestors for speech communication and for the very cognitive representational flexibility necessary to become humans. So essentially, mu without music, we wouldn't have evolved into becoming the form of human that we are now that can have uh, consciousness and can communicate via language. Like, whoa, dude. It's yeah. They've, uh, also, apparently, they've made two documentaries about this uh, book that I have not watched. So I'm going to seek those out and check them out. It's called This Is Your Brain on Music. Fuck yeah, man. Yeah, dude. Check that out. Nice. Next segment, we're going to kick this one over to our buddy Britt here because oh, it is our favorite. They're all our favorite. We segments. need like a, you know what we need? A segment where we have like a wheel and we spin a wheel. Spin for the segment? Yeah, oh, yeah like yeah, spin dude. the segment, dude. The segment. So all right, you funny. make the wheel. I'll spin I will. That shit. I'll design that shit. Uh, this is where we either, it's either, it's, we either call it band buds or pod pals. Yeah. But I think uh, in the interest of band buds, uh, let's talk about the Britt Jones project and what you've got going with that shit, man. Um,. I feel like I've been put on the spot. Uh, <laughs> it's no almost pressure. like you're a guest on a podcast. <laughs> um, yeah. So I just released an album under Britt Jones. Uh, it's a solo project I recorded uh, last year. I mean, I, this is my second album. Okay. Um, it's more focused this time, which is awesome. Let's talk a little bit about the recording. Um, did you do that at home? What kind of gear are you using on that? What kind of, what was the time frame like on that? So uh, this was a... This was about a year recording process for seven tracks. Um, it originally started out in my house. Mm -hmm. I was just demoing tracks, and then I would get everything kind of together, and then I would go over to my friend uh, and you know lifelong collaborator, it seems like, Dan, um, and we would record more finished versions of that. Okay. And then I went so you were kind of demoing at home first and then... Yeah, I kind of, when it comes to this project specifically or anything really like that I'm not producing, but I'm producing and writing and performing and stuff, I mm -hmm. kind of, I, I now go through this process of writing everything out and making sure it makes sense. And then I'll do the vocals and everything. And then I'll go to the studio and bug someone. Mm -hmm. And then like the 
then record vocals at my house by myself because I don't want anyone looking at me. Yep. <laughs> I feel that, man. In a bathroom alone with the door shut. I just, like, I've never gotten good results, like, just singing in front of somebody. Yeah, it's you tough, know what I mean? Man, it's really so, tough. So I usually put people in the other room so they yeah. don't have to look at me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, it's kind of like wa- when someone would be, like, watching you, like, go to the bathroom mm-hmm. or something, right? You stage know, fright, man. Staring at your dick, bro. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, let's just say, like, fright, I don't, I think stage fright is different because it's just, like, what if I fuck up? I think the creative aspect is like you're watching someone birth something. So it's a little yeah, more really intimate. Im- yeah, for sure. Man. And you don't want to be wasting well, there, someone else's time. There, you like, have to have so much trust there that like mm-hmm. you can feel that vulnerability to suck. Cause a lot of the times your takes are going to suck and uh, you have to be invested in that 80 take situation. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or just be like, all right, well we're going to go, we're going to punch in or every single or part have of someone thing. say like, that was good enough. Let's move on, man. Yeah, exactly. Like, that was a really good take. That's know? hugely important too, because I've, I, I think that's probably more important for me. I, I, just being so insecure and second guessing anything I ever do. If I hear someone that I trust say like, no, that's good. Let's move on. Like sweet. That's just like, I I'll, I'll, I'll accept that. And then you wake on. up the next day and listen to it and you go, Hey, that actually was pretty fucking good. I think I was like in my own head about that yeah. shit, you know? It's no, a, it's a cycle. That's what you, that's why you pay those engineers. I was going to say, is that hard? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, obviously you record, you do all the shit. Like, is it hard to do your own thing? You, you have a friend who helps you. Yeah. You trust I, him very I, much. I, I decompartmentalize. You have to. Um, so I dump engineering. I pay engin- I will pay you to engineer my records. Yeah. Like I, I do that for real. That's I awesome, think, man. Well, it's a professional thing. I, you know, I really truly believe that you need impartiality, and like you know, even if it is just two guys, somebody's gonna have to mix it, and someone's gonna have to make the the you know aesthetic calls. So you don't mix it yourself either. No, nah, I don't. I don't prefer. Yeah, it's too much time. It's too many decisions, cool. and I don't. I don't think that's a wise investment for any artist, to be honest with you. That's so funny. I've, I have specifically gone down the road the past several years of going deep on recording and mixing so I could do that for mm-hmm. myself. But I feel myself often preferring to actually record and mix other people's music than my too. own. Yeah, I will mix I will mix anybody's album. I won't mix my own, though. Yeah. In the same way that, you know, like... I produce when I produce stuff. I don't. I I ask people to. Do you have a studio engineer? Do you? You know, like there's questions. Yeah. More back to the tape, just because I want it to be about me a little bit more. Let's please um, do that. We recorded it. Uh, it's mainly What's digital. It called? It's called Beneath the Waves. Um, and yeah, it's it was recorded pretty much all digitally. Um, we do. I do use like a. I don't use that tape ep- echo. All that stuff. All the fun stuff came afterwards mm. as a result of making this record. Yeah. Mm. So you can try to get some of that stuff on stage. Yeah. Um, exactly. Um, and so we used like you know old Echoplex like uh, tape delay on some stuff that was like kind of half broken. EP three. Um, yeah, it was the EP three, and you know that was a cool. It's a cool machine. It's really funky. Um, oh yeah. Uh, Does that dance? Yeah, it is dance. And we use like, you know, um some you know, I, I use like Juno chorus kind of style plugins and then I also did like, you know, original like, you know, Ivan SCS stuff. And cool. Yeah, it was uh it it's it's not it's not an insane project. I think it it's bit very much like a testament of what we talk about where it's like you just you have these tools and if you know how to use them it doesn't matter whether it's digital or analog recorded as long as you know what you're trying to get out of it. Oh, dude, for sure. And and it, I, so I've only heard the single, the one that you made the video for, which sounds mm-hmm. awesome. I really liked it. And, it. and it has that vibe. It like it doesn't it sounds like it could have been or was recorded 
analog perhaps but it doesn't sound like it's someone trying to beat you over the head with the fact that they have a tape machine like there is this analog feel and kind of waviness to it and like some of the like wow and flutter that you might expect but it doesn't sound to me like oh this guy wants me to know he's an analog what's dude. the what's the single mm-hmm. called the single oh i don't remember blood meets the waves blood yeah that's a great name by the way i love Fuck that yeah, man and Thank the video is pretty much just our buddy Rich. here dancing, which is uh, also exciting. Oh, is that right? Dancing and going and eating a hot dog from Super Yeah, Dallas. and yeah. eating a hot dog. That's right. It's a great video. Okay. Uh, excited to pop that tape in later. Check that out. Um, yeah. So, so when you were when you were doing that, did you know that you were going to release it on cassette? Yes. So, did you decide? Did you make decisions specifically to fit that That's format? A good question. Um. Yeah, but no. Both. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, shit. So let me. Well, what do you? What do you? What do you mean by that? Um, I. So there was like this long. Not to get on this tangent, but there's this long conversation please, please. that happened around the time that we started doing this podcast, and it was kind of floating around the internet that Steve Albini made like some wild remarks about like analog in and out and digital recording and and whatever that mm-hmm. means, right? And like a long time ago, I kind of came to the the personal stance that if I know that I'm recording everything digitally in and I know that that's going to be the output, the medium just needs to be tweaked whatever way. All right. Like you're, you're putting a digital reflection onto an analog medium. It's ultimately going to sound digital Mm -hmm. to a certain degree, but it's also going to sound warmer because of what masking and tape does. But in the same way that when we stream MP3s, masking happens in this in a similar way but not in the same way so when you when i was thinking about all of that stuff i just kind of kind of go okay so as long as it's going to sound relatively the same across platforms i think i've done my job as like a producer engineer and i will do that and there's a lot of emulation on those those records for that reason Mm -hmm. so when i did move it over because when you do prints on tape you have to compile them all and you'd run them continuously Mm -hmm. um so each side is contiguous. I just made sure that it sounded right on tape. So the master is the same for tape as it is on, say, Spotify? Oh, yeah. Oh, cool. It's going, and, and that's, this should be the goal. Yeah. I'm not going to lie about that. Well, I, so I remember I've only ever pressed one album to vinyl of my own work. Uh-huh. And when we mastered it, I remember there definitely being kind of, we had to, we had to master separately for vinyl and for digital. Yeah. And be, part of that was just because you've got to make the stamper and all the weird shit that goes into making a record. But I do know that there were some slightly different, say, like master bus EQ moves and things that were done when we were going to make the Spotify versions versus what we were doing with the vinyl version. So having never made a cassette like that, I just I'm totally ignorant to that process. Well, I mean, I get there's a lot of there's a lot of variables in that. Right. So like if it was your band and you're doing a band thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like maybe the output was a little different. Maybe like what they felt was going to be good for zero is different. I've never really pressed vinyl. Mm-hmm. So like, I know that there's some like technique involved in that. Oh, that's yeah, totally. like not the same for me. Um, so that's just going to be full disclosure. Like yeah. I've never sat in Bernie Grudman. I've dropped tapes off to Bernie Grudman. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, right. like we did a Chicago mastering with well, uh, Jason Ward. No, it's the same. That's what I'm saying yeah. is that like there is a group of people that know that stuff yep. and I am not a mastering engineer or anything for sure. I mean, I did release this tape myself and I will as 
for full transparency sake, never mastered it. I was going to ask, have you, did you master the tape? No, I didn't. You just got it up to level. Yeah. Like, cause what I'm not, again, this kind of goes like the very first part of this recording started out with me playing a guitar and going into a box Yeah, and the box was not an amp. It was, it was a, you know, interface (laughs) Mm -hmm. and all of that stuff happened in the box. And then when it comes out of the box, it sounded kind of like it's going to sound the same. Yep. So, if it sounds about as loud as the same mastered thing that like I'm comparing it to, mm-hmm. you know, and especially for the aesthetics of what we're doing yeah. here, let's just be real here. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a lo-fi sounding Absolutely. thing. It's, it's not this crisp thing. Now, if we're talking about, we're going full on guys, we're going to spend the money. Yeah. Then I'm going to pay for someone to master this. Yeah, exactly. You're not, you're not throwing a Bob clear mountain mix onto a cassette tape. That's no. like, if you were paying for that sort of thing, then you're going to pay for the full shebang. Right. Mm-hmm. But if the, like you said, the aesthetic of it is this kind of lo-fi goal, then yeah. Why would you try to master it into something that it isn't? It's kind of like neutral milk hotel. Didn't, it only needed to be mastered because it it's going on to medium. Exactly. And that's where you, you kind of, you spend your money mastering. But when you have this digital evolution where nobody's mastering anything, or at least very few people mm-hmm. are mastering or just like things. Uploading it to Lander or yeah. one of those sites. That Lander, just makes man. It, it just makes yeah. it louder. Oh, yeah. Oh, so yeah. If you are, that's technically the master yeah. is that we use Lander. They just make it louder. And they, basically, they just put an extreme brick wall limiter on it. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. it. He just, that's, that's what my engineer did is he just like kind of gave me some like hat, little Lander stuff. And then we went back and we remixed it. Oh, right. So like we listened to Lander mm-hmm. and we're like, oh, that's cool. But we were going to put this with tape and we got headroom. Yep. I'm sorry. So yeah, I guess I like we kind of mixed it for tape, but like it was kind of like well, after I would assume you would have to. I mean, you you have a digital distribution. Like I'm sure it's on Spotify, maybe or mm-hmm. like yeah, iTunes. It's, it's it's everywhere. Yeah, so you're gonna. I mean, a tape is a completely different medium. Yep. So you're gonna have to like change it a little bit. You know. Yeah, but we mixed the original master for both. Like we knew it was going into tape. From okay. The so you had the idea that it was gonna definitely yeah. Go so like it. the mastered version for both ends of it is still the tape version of it, but we mixed. We did the mastering component not off of Lander. We just took the notes from Lander and said we need it to be at this level, but we're going to, you know, notch our, mm-hmm. the dark voodoo arts that these guys do. Yeah, yeah man. I, mean. I love that shit. So um, I think we've gotten kind of like through the recording release process. I would like to hear a little bit about like what we were talking about. There is this separation in mentally or physically between the recorded work and the, the live work. So like, you know, presumably you're playing shows around this and stuff like how how are you taking that that recorded sound and turning that into something that you're like expressing on stage to strangers? So that was that was the biggest problem from like so I released a record before this one and I couldn't play it live. There's just yeah. there's no way that I could play it live. There was too much going on and I was like just there was a lot of not being able to do things, right? Sure. So when this opportunity when I started started writing, I wrote with the intention that at some point in time, some version of this is going to be played live with either a group of people or by myself. Mm-hmm. And either way, I got to figure out that that thing. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to record an acoustic album. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> so i i did I did what I could, and and I definitely went into Ableton, and Ableton was going to definitely be like my playbacks. Mm-hmm. So backing tracks and stuff like that. Not all of it though. So like what we did, what I did was like we recorded the full album, and then I went back, and then I redid it. I went back and said, all right, we're going to do a session, a live session of a live, like all these tracks, but we're going to redo the sounds. We're going to, I'm going to take live drum machines with me and do drum machines for these things because they were already drum machines from the get. Mm -hmm. So why don't we just go back and do drum machines 
again, but use real drum machines playing back in real time. Fuck yeah. And like basically using Ableton as some playback as a synthesizer, but mostly also a MIDI just just output. So you had this record and then you went back and you were like, we need to figure out a way to play this live. And then I replayed a lot of it. I re we did Ableton's really cool where you can take melodies and stuff like that too and just pull them and and create just MIDI. And so some of that happened with that. Um, But yeah, there's I've replayed all like all a lot of the tracks in, in different broken down like this is now just like a a a more synthesized version of it than a live sounding Mm -hmm. version of it because i knew that i was you know i'm gonna play by myself so it's just gonna sound and the the key factors of that and then i bought gear around it and that was the other thing so you don't play with a band or anything no i don't okay so i i use a mesa boogie mark 2a oh yeah baby now we're talking it's uh it's a cream one right yeah it's the it's my cream it's a cream beauty I love that amp. I, I thought I bought it originally thinking it was a Mark II B, but the guy miss you know misknew what he had yeah. and gave me an A. I got the A. It's not a Mark One, which I wish I had, but whatever. Meh. It's Mark a great, II is pretty sweet, man. It's it's, a, they're highly desirable. <laughs> I mean, everybody yeah. who's a Mesa freak knows that the Mark II C Plus, Plus is, is kind of the one that's, that's like, one. you the know, if you D. can find it, they're like five figures. Yeah. Um, but I mean, dude, you can, and not only is it already close with the one that Brit has, but like. You could mod those things and, and get them even closer if you wanted to. It's like, I mean, we're talking mm-hmm. about like an, an emulation versus like a, a live thing. It's that close. Like it's, you know, splitting hairs, but right. it's still an awesome amp. What did you, I'm good. What did you, uh, what did you bring? What do we got over there right now? Um, a little, so working into this live rig yeah. situation. So when I, when I built the live rig, I thought I was going to do a tape delay for live performances. Bold. Bold, <laughs> yeah, bold move, my friend. <laughs> I was trying to be a very bold young man. <laughs> Ambitions. But regardless, I am like very much invested in in tape delay. And which one is that? Um, so I bought this t- HH tape echo. It's called the multi echo. Um, it's spaced similar to a Benson echo rec. Uh, it was distributed to the States through Guild guitars. It's got four heads, right? Four heads, yeah. Um, the spacing is printed on the thing so i never memorized it mm-hmm. so I, I can't tell you um it's a push button with no variable speed i feel like it's a very like it sounds really cool through guitar obviously oh yeah we're we're having some fun with that took take, took me a little bit to outer space for a minute there Whew. we got I, some video i think we're gonna a little bit so i got i got yeah see yeah it's it's a cool thing and then i brought uh which is in my live rig actually a cr78 clone from uh company called cyclone analogic that thing is so impressive so fun and it's a cr78 like i said it's a clone it's called the tt78 and because a lot of the records that i used i used a cr78 drum sound so and those are the two Makes pieces sense. of equipment yeah but when you look at it i thought it was some sort of 303 clone at first because that's mm-hmm. what it kind of Me looks too. like mm-hmm. um but man it's it does a cr78 thing but then it has so much sweet digital control it's got the what is it 64 step sequencer you can run in there all kinds of crazy different parameters you can tweak mm-hmm. not to mention the individual outputs for the sounds which is huge and for anybody who's ever recorded a drum machine you know how awesome that is because then you can process each the snare separate from the kick for instance and right. rather than having to like you could technically do that on any drum synth but then you just have to dump each track individually which takes forever oh it's a great it's a great tool i definitely i stand by it i think that you're not going to find a programmable drum machine with that sound set 
for a very cheap price because like the CR78 nope. is like a grand, and that's the first. The reason why it's so expensive is the first programmable like drum machine. Mm-hmm. It's uh, the com- Copy Rhythm 78. Yeah, baby. You know the 68. <laughs> the step down didn't have that same sort of control, mm-hmm. and so like to get that, and then also you, you don't get MIDI from those machines. So to get MIDI also, I think was like a no brainer, especially for the the price tag. It was like 350. Dude, there is like a, a non-zero chance that by the end of this week, I have one. <laughs> oh, I guarantee it. <laughs> you know, It'll show up on a picture. I I'm want sure. one so bad because it's for the price and for the feature set, it's exactly what I want. I've never seen it before. Very excited about that shit, man. It, it's a very, it's a very cool, cool thing. Um, so yeah, and then I use an old R- Yamaha drum machine, the RX-7. Oh, oh cool. really? Yeah, for the other sounds. Kind of, kind of looks a little bit like the TX-7 right here. Yes, it, it, it's in the family. Yeah. <laughs> its notable users are Erasure for Ooh. their live rig. It's a re- these are really dependable language machines, right? Like I don't, I designed my live rig for that kind of like roadworthiness, mm-hmm. right? So like, you know, these drum machines may not be the most lusted after or like rare, but they're like, you can take them on stage and like beat the fuck out of them yep. and call it a day. Reliable gear, man. And my favorite little underrated piece of equipment is my Cube 60 keyboard from the 80s. Really? That and my Ross distortion. Those two things, man. No shit. Dude, they're so cheap, but you just get so much sound out of them. Like the, huh. the Roland Cube 60, comes with a Roland, a vintage Roland spring reverb. That's right. Oh wow. Yeah. Real real true spring. Yes. That's yeah, awesome. Dude. It's amazing. And these wow. are like these are things that turn up in pawn shops sometimes. Oh, yeah. Like people I have paid, no idea. I've had a Roland cube before yeah. for sure. I had and it's the vintage one. Yeah. You can't get the yeah. like it's not the micro cube. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like the vintage cube, it's it's a, a very awesome like just budget under a hundred bucks. Mm-hmm. And you get this like super in out Roland, you know, classic Everything about like the vintage Roland that you love, mm-hmm. it's in this thing and it's an amp and you get like a good vintage reverb. You can also get the chorus, like there's the chorus one where you can get the Roland chorus, analog chorus built in. We're big fans of the Roland actually. Uh, well, I've got a, I've got a Roland jazz chorus jazz right chorus. over there, but it's funny. I, I love the sound of that thing, but I fucking hate chorus. So I don't, <laughs> I don't do. know how to explain this it. This guy hates chorus. Hate chorus. I'm, so I'm a big chorus guy now. Oh, well, I was going to ask, yeah. how do you, do? You, are you doing any um, vocal processing live? Live, no, I wish. <laughs> that, that's the hardest. That's something I've tangled with. That's I've never come with up with a good. I took a year of voice lessons. That's what I did. Yeah, yeah, well, that's that's a pretty big step right there. It's called too. learning how to yeah. sing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but you can't learn how to make your voice sound like you're in a thousand foot canyon or something. I remember like Mark that. used to show up with a pedal and they'd have to like run the sound, oh, the yeah. soundboard and XLR. And sound it's like, guys hate. Oh my god, effects. they were. We ended up just unplugging it. Like, and he brought it. Well, to they one almost show. always sound. They almost always add this weird high frequency hum thing and like feeding back and and it'll give this weird honk at like two and a half k (laughs) dude it's like they're all they all kind of have this weird sound but i feel it's not worth it there's there's a lot of potential for vocal effects live like some bands when they pull that shit off usually it happens at front of house with a great sound guy but like if you can have some cool pals at your feet like that's going to make it more interesting for me to listen Mm to you know i mean i feel that i wish i wish um for me i just the record's themselves don't have like a ton of processing yeah. them anymore i've been like really trying to step into that like not hiding behind although i soak everything in reverb like it's like a fucking 
you know, like I'm a, I'm a single housewife with a white bottle of wine. Full <laughs> <laughs> white Zin in That's the a afternoon. Great analogy, dude. Uh, do you do you just use the stock Ableton uh, plugins, or do you have uh, extra stuff that you're oh, using? I I use for mo- for everything. I don't use able. I use Ableton plugins when I'm like just like fucking around. Yeah. Um, I definitely use my own plugins for stuff yeah. now. I for for that that specific project. I think the only thing that I really like kept no there was not a lot so all of the yeah i do use stock ableton reverb for live though not the reverb the tape echo oh yeah the the fake tape echo, the new echo and, well whatever though i think it came out with live 10 right that yeah. echo device and it has the like you can mm-hmm. see the reverberations from it yeah 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 yeah. i i use that just as like a little added <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> a little frosting that thing's yeah. super powerful though man it sounds mm-hmm. awesome oh no i like it i like I like Ableton stuff. I'm like a big firm. I had this conversation with someone and it just bummed them out where I was like, yo, like you don't need, you can make a good album with just Ableton and no external anything. Without a doubt. Sure. You can. And like, I hope so. And that, I think you should be very telling about like when you buy plugins and stuff like that, it's very much like, do you really need it? Cause mm-hmm. if you can make a decent, like you get decent 808 sounds just right out the box. Dude, I get emails once a week from places that are like, download the new plugin, yeah. buy the new plugin. Listen, all right, yeah. all right. Let's stop hating on non uh, Henry's like, and I downloaded every single because one. Because I do buy plugins, but I do too. there are specifically yeah. instances when there's uh, something that Ableton doesn't do for me. I mean, there are a couple that I can name off the top of my head that, like, first of all, I'm deep in the UAD culture, so like, I, I have a lot of Universal Audio plugins. But beyond that, like, so, some of the Sound Toys stuff, you can't get that in Ableton. Like Echo Boy, Little Alter Boy, those don't exist. The Soft Tubes, Soft Tubes, even their partnership with Soft yep. has improved Ableton's amp modeling tenfold. Yeah, I mean, even they're the same company that does the Universal Audio amp modeling. Mm-hmm. So it's, I mean, it's really good shit. Yeah. Um, I mean, what are the, some, I mean, it's obviously like people like the Mick DSP stuff. That's like super high end mastering type stuff or like isotope. You can't get any of the like right. the really good mastering stuff in Ableton, yep. but man, like honestly I use EQ eight, the stock, uh, regular, just like eight, cha- eight band plugin on Ableton all the time because it's, it's, you can do surgical stuff with it. You can get as wide with it as you want to. It sounds great. It's clean. Like Ableton stuff sounds good now. Mm-hmm. I, I use of a, a, a brand's SSL modeling strip. The E channel that I use the UAD one. Yeah. Use the E. I use a G. I do. I bought a G channel yeah. just because, like, when you're, I it's flexible. Yeah. Oh, I use the G bus compressor. Yeah. But I mean, I bought when I bought those those things. I bought them with the the very much the idea of like if I'm gonna run a G compressor, I'm gonna run the G channel. Yeah. <laughs> like, For sure. In line. I so you know like. I don't like saying brands when it comes to like modeled stuff because like a it's choose your own flavor. Mm-hmm. You know, like I there's a million different manufacturers doing modeled SSL stuff. Yep. It's just like it's the most cost effective solution to get a channel strip. So you you do you use it. You Dude, know, channel strips are where it's at. You get full dynamics. You get all the EQ. You get all anything you need. It's like having you could set it up like you have an SSL desk in front of you essentially. Right. Yeah, but you can buy a cheap SSL desk now, and that's the that's the nuts to butts situation. Oh, like X desk or whatever it's called. Well, that's the that's the mixed desk, and yeah. that's like five grand, which is affordable. Yeah. Unfortunately, right. compared to a real, yeah. a real SSL. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm, I mean, for all intents and purposes, it's a real SSL. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I feel what you're saying, and and they do use some of the same technology, but like they're not the SSL that people know 
with flying faders and automation all that when i get when i if i have when i get 1500 to just knock off which i probably will do i will buy the ssl6 i am going to buy that board that thing's super cool dude it comes with a version of the g bus cool and then we let's just and and to tie this all around Mm. walk full circle are we going are we going We're going we're going today so when we talk about why we love these boards, it has to do with compat, you know, the actual use of components, right? Yeah. We're running, ele- you know, electronics through it. I have a $1,500 solution to do what I can do, mm-hmm. to do that, to yeah. do very much what is now used to be extremely unaffordable. Or, you know, if you wanted one SSL channel strip, it cost you $1,500. Mm-hmm. Now you can get six channels, two SSL pre's, and a version of a, a comp bus on a small footprint format thing. I'm not gonna be mad at that, dude. No. I'm sold, dude. Oh, trust me. The Where's, second I saw the it, I saw the announcement, I was like, I'm gonna buy this. Unfortunately, I did the research and it doesn't have the right I/O for my rig. Uh, it doesn't have enough, actually. No, it's a six. It's, it's a, just six, which I'm running six. a lot more than that. Gotta but get two of them then. Right? <laughs> at that point, then maybe you should look at something <laughs> else. What I would like to do is buy like, say, an old Neve or API mm-hmm. sidecar. That was just like an eight channel sidecar for the yeah, big baby. desk, which would be exactly what I would need right there for yeah. any. Yeah, some with the small footprint yeah. thing. Yeah, has talking. one. It's like uh, about yay. I'm making it's it with really my hands on a podcast, though. but it's like six grand. I think it's like the, it's not a portico, but it's the Neve. Henry's holding his hands about two. It's feet like about apart. two feet by one feet. Yeah, it's a center. It's essentially a center section of, of a Neve console with just, an eight preamp. Just get the X desk, man. Like, that's what that SSL. That's the whole point of that five grand SSL is yeah. what you're talking about. It's like you already got your pre situation figured out, right? You got yeah. your input. If you already got your input, then get the the mix desk because then all you're going to do is you're running your mix mode, right? Like the reason that I that is unnecessary for me right now is because I have this dangerous D box. So that does all my D to A conversion. It does all my summing. So it, that, it, that's this what it is, needs to this do. This is essentially a center con- the center section of a big console right here. So this is like the main part of the console. I'm pointing at my Apollo, and then this is like the center section. But with those two, like I kind of have what used to be like the analog workflow just without all the faders and knobs in front of me. Well, if you want your SSL EQs and he does want it. He does want it. If you want your SSL channel strips without your preamp section, you can spend five grand and get like a total of eight to ten channels or whatever of it. I'm, I, look, it's it's not like I haven't already tried to think like no. mm, what guitar should I sell to get that. Like I've definitely gone down. Well, this it's path. it's just like I those boards are the new future, right? Like these yeah. are the these are the the problems that we're solving now like the Mm -hmm. old boards are really big they're really clunky we love them but like it's huge it's expensive the electric you know like there's just like 20 million things and then then people are like well i need this part of the board yep so people started lunchboxing shit Mm -hmm. or like racking up one channel of an ssl and then they're like actually I need like 16. (laughs) (laughs) And the old board's sitting there going, what did I do? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Other than cost more than most homes. Take up the entire side of your wall. And have like an automation section that you don't need and Mm -hmm. all this other stuff. So like I get why that the super analog exists. I know why that that exists. And I would recommend that to somebody with your things because what do you need? You just need a desk that has the EQ and the like faders, EQ and whatever. Mm -hmm. And that's it. For me, I'm a I'm I'm running a smaller studio. The six works a lot better. It has the inserts for in and out for my like stupid outboard gear that I like to whatever. But it's it's really meant for producers just to get you know tracks done and get it in and out and get them. Thing. I would never want to mix on that fucking thing. Yeah, right. There you go. You know what I mean? Because it's not meant for that. Uh-huh. It's really just a budget. I get, you know, I get six SSL 
channels essentially for the price of one full channel strip that you can rack up. I'm going to need that because it, I'm not losing quality versus, you know, I'm not losing anything in this battle. Well, dude, I tell you what, you go buy this fucker. We'll have you back on the show. <laughs> yeah. We're going to shoot that thing out. Bring because, it in or something. Or maybe, you'll, maybe we should be on your show sometime and then yeah. we'll talk about it there. I'm, I don't know if you guys do the, the guest thing or not. We definitely me. do the guest thing. We do a lot of calling guest stuff, so you can definitely Dude, do it. I'm glad you're... you brought that up off the air. Off the air, we should. Talk I've been about trying this. to figure out the best way to do this, so I want to hear about your your techniques for doing this. We don't have to bore people uh, on the podcast with this. We'll talk. Yeah, we'll talk. I want to. I want to know about your techniques there. So here's the here's the also funny thing that happens. Pretty much anytime we have a good guest on the show is where I like create this big long outline with all sorts of stuff to talk about, and I think we've successfully touched on maybe three or four. <laughs> we just like copy and paste things. it into next week. But I, that's exactly what happens. I just move it into the next week. But I have to say, like. I, I'm super into it. Like, is you know, the best laid plans of mice and men off go awry. Thank you. Right? <laughs> like this well is said. this is I can't say it better than that. This is uh, this you. is how it should be. So listen, I'm just gonna cut us off right here because yeah. we've had a great fucking episode. Awesome, Britt. Tell the people where they can find your stuff, what 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 they can check out, what they can listen to and buy, and all that good stuff. Oh, awesome! Thank you. Uh, yeah, my new album "Beneath the Waves" is out on all streaming platforms. You can buy the cassette out on Bandcamp. Um, I also do a podcast with my friend uh, called How to Suck at Recording. Um, I will come to your city and play at your bar mitzvah. Just email me at, you know, BrittJonesMan at gmail.com. Are you doing the Instagrams and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, yeah, I got socials. You, Britt Jones Man. Just if you type in Britt Jones Man and at any of your social media, I will come Brit, up like a creepy thing. Two T's, right? Yeah, two T's. All right. There's a country star that has the same name as me. Not a star, but a, a fledgling country. No Not a star. Songwriter. He hasn't released anything new since like 2010. Don't you hate that, dude? Dude, one of my we dreams. We were talking is, about that. One of my dreams is that somebody listens to this episode and then reaches out to the wrong Looks Brit up Jones. that guy. <laughs> They're like, dude, I want you to engineer my shit. You get that SSL yet? He's like, what the hell is fuck. this? All right, oh, well, man. hey. Dude, that, was, that was awesome. Thanks so guys. much, man. Thank I really you. appreciate you coming on, dude. Thank you guys for having me. Um, I'm sorry we didn't talk more about my toys, but. They're just toys, so...